listening to the Construction Big Breakfast, where we give you a hearty serving of insider tips and business strategies to help fuel your day so you can thrive in the construction industry. Now, here's your host, Tip Top Tim Fitch. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Construction Big Breakfast with me, your host, Tip Top Tim Fitch. And today I've got two uh, very interesting guests from Civic Engineers, Stephen O'Malley and Leah Stewart. And I've also got our Aidan Bourne, who's joined us uh, a couple of months ago as our lead in business development. And today we're going to have a discussion, which I hope everyone's going to find really interesting. But perhaps to start things off, uh, our two guests might introduce themselves a bit more uh, thoroughly. Okay, I'm... Oh, I'm, I'm Leah Stewart. <laughs> I'm Leah Stewart. I'm a chartered civil engineer and um, I'm a director at Civic Engineers. Um, I've, I've been doing engineering for about 20 years now and done a lot of transport planning and a lot of very early stage planning of developments. So that, that sort of really exciting big thinking stage um, worked a lot in regeneration of uh, town centres. Um, and I also sit on the West Yorkshire Combined Authority LEP. Green Economy panel, which has been really interesting. And I, I sit on the Yorkshire Design Review panel as well. So I look in a bit more detail about footbridges and things like that. So um, quite, a quite a varied experience. I'm a school governor as well, and I've got three children. So I'm also a real human. Well, lots going on there, Leah. Yeah. Uh, thank you, and thanks for inviting us along this morning, Tim. Uh, following on from Leah's point, I'd I too like to start off uh, our conversation recognising the fact that I'm a human being uh, in these conversations as an, as an engineering being the topic. But uh, as a, as a practising consulting engineer for over 20 years, uh, I'm one of the co-founding directors of Civic Engineers in 2013. And through Civic Engineers, which now uh, is present in four cities, London, Glasgow, Leeds and Manchester, with about 120 people across those four different locations. Uh, it's been a it's been a real passion of mine to think about urban infrastructure in its broadest sense, and think about that in its most composite sense. Um, and my uh, interest with regards to the business and sort of focus has been on that urban infrastructure dimension. Uh, structural engineering also makes up a, a significant portion of our workload, probably about 60% of our business is structural engineering. So as a, ba a basic overview, Tim, that's uh, that's my role within civic engineers. Okay, that's great. And there's some, uh, obviously for our viewers who've been watching this series, well, this is gonna be about number 50, by the way. Uh, this is a new sort of guest, which is uh, people who are focused on the, uh, the public realm. And of course, uh, Aidan, perhaps you just give us a, how, how you came to know Stephen. Yeah, so I met Stephen in Glasgow. What would that be? Three years ago, Stephen? Yeah, sounds about right. Eight, yeah. Picked up a rather large piece of work from what I remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so Stephen was working on uh, a project called the Avenues in Glasgow, which was, well, still is a, a project about £120 million regenerating, you know, the majority of Glasgow's infrastructure. Um, and Stephen and I had a, a nice walk around a rainy Glasgow and discussing what we can do with old materials, what we can do with new materials, uh, and yeah, the the future of Glasgow really. So that yeah, that was good good memories. Okay, that's great as a intro. We've got a good understanding now uh, of Civic and how they came to be on this podcast, which is good. Now. 
even I've, I've seen from what you've got on your website and some of the things you've said publicly you've got a you've got a big uh philosophical interest in the, the conflation of engineers and emotional intelligence and speaking as a civil engineer who actually was a civil engineer for a long time before i became a uh, management consultant that that isn't always uh you know, engineers aren't known for being massively emotionally intelligent my experience i'm speaking for myself yeah, well, I, I, this is a fascinating topic for me, genuinely uh, an inspiring question. I think actually the roots of our profession, if you go back 200 years, I think emotional intelligence was a primary driver in a lot of the engineering that we'd seen, the likes of Bazalgette's impact on uh, the clean water in London and a complete reshaping of the landscape in London in the form of the embankment or Bateman uh, who brought clean water to Glasgow uh, with bringing the fresh water from Loch Catherine into the city of Glasgow and, and the impact that that had on public health uh, and uh, how the, all of that manifested itself in the built environment in the public realm uh, was, was very, very powerful. And I think th it's been a little bit disappointing over the last 60 years, I, I would argue, uh, that there's been a sort of segregation of engineering into specialisms and specific disciplines, and it has led to a siloing of, uh, of, of engineering judgment and opinion and what we've attempted to do and certainly it's a, a real passion of mine is to try and bring this composite view of engineering back together so when Aidan made makes reference to that phenomenal project that Glasgow has had the foresight to commission in the form of the avenues uh, it, it is a transformative piece of work reshaping the entire landscape uh, within the city centre of which we've got an important but small part to play in that wider sense because there's so many different agencies and stakeholders and residents and businesses and, and, and the whole community of the city uh, interested in what that means because what the city is attempting to do there is to change the way people interact with the city centre and from an engineering perspective uh, that actually requires a bit more poetry than just straightforward science. It needs a bit more care and consideration, a bit of uh, specific response to the conditions that you encounter, rather than just rolling out a carpet of treatment across and within those spaces. So you're responding to the buildings, you're responding to the architecture, the topography, the geography. You're trying to link back into the natural rhythms uh, of the landscape in terms of taking rainwater uh, and reworking it through natural cycles back into the Clyde, taking it out of the sewer systems and, and, uh, and, and, and pipework, and therefore reducing the stress on the network during storms and, and extreme weather events. And simultaneously, you're then offering up space for more social interaction and really critically, uh, the opportunity for habitat and biodiversity to recolonize streets and bring insects and birds and a bit of nature meaningfully hardwired back into the city centre. So uh, that I would contend does require technical excellence, but I'd say that's the entry level. What you then need to do is take that technical excellence and apply it with a high degree of emotional intelligence to get the best outcome. Leah, what, how, how does that emotional intelligence factor into your approach to projects? I think I think there's a lot about um, it's what Stephen's saying, and then and then you add on the people that are going to be going to be using using those streets and spaces, um, and the impact that it would that it would have on them as well. Um, I think you know we've traditionally uh, 
done a lot of transport planning that's just been based on people go to work and they come home but actually that's not how people live their lives at the moment it's it's especially at the moment in a post-covid world we've all had to adapt and change the way we do things and actually it's not been how a lot of people it's not how i've lived my life because i've worked part-time sometimes i have to do things around my life around my work and actually we start planning for real people's real lives and we start thinking in a lot more detail and talking to people and really listening actually i think that's the key listening to to how what people's experiences are and 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 starting to kind of understand how it feels to be in a place as well i think when you look at um one of, one of the, the principles we've talked a lot about on the glasgow avenue scheme is this healthy streets principle and making places where people can live healthier and happier lives but but there's a, there's a, a metric that um, Transport for London use, which is about healthy streets. And they're really like, we, you know, engineers might say, um, I, um, we use kind of quite complicated metrics or we use KPIs and things. But actually, on, on the healthy streets index, you're talking about people feel safe, which is a really um, sort of basic human um measure isn't it you, you want to feel safe somewhere actually you start linking your engineering back how do, how do we make people feel safe well they need a safe place to cross the road or they need to feel that their children aren't going to get run over by a car or um you, you know that that sort of thing or or people feel comfortable well they might have trees by them and that gives them a bit you know stephen's talking about biodiversity it's an interesting place to be it's sort of really thinking back to people's experience of a place it's a completely new way of thinking about projects because when I read the, the pieces around emotional intelligence and engineering, I assume you were talking about management of the process rather than the actual conceptualization of the solution. So that's a for me, that's a very um, new idea. I, I think, Tim, it's 360 degrees. So I think you're quite right. Uh, it, it is it is the process by which these projects come forward because the, the simple fact of the matter is we need to recognize that these decisions occur in complex political environments and there's got multiple stakeholders and some of those stakeholders have got different values and conflicting goals and it's the interaction uh, of these different uh, interested parties uh, that we've got to try and address and resolve and then incorporate that into the into the built environment so yes uh, it, it's the it manifests itself in the physical way, but actually it's also the process. So what we've be, what we've had to become much better at is communication and reaching out and engaging with, and not just sort of informing people or telling people, but actually listening. So again, for example, if I may just pick up on the uh, avenues again, we, we've worked very closely with the Glasgow Disability Alliance, for example, and, uh, and their sensory impairment unit. And we've spent time with that group uh, walking and rolling and power chairing around the city to understand the uh, stresses and strains that that community have and trying to navigate independently around the city centre. And that then has informed and shaped how we lay out the geometry of the street and the topography and, and deal with gradients and materiality and all of those other really important details. So it's, um, uh, it's a more sophisticated but more uh, values-led uh, process that gives, I'd hope, and believe, much better outcomes. Thank you for that. I mean, that's really, really interesting. I think it does differentiate you from um, 
many many other businesses which we come across in in that philosophy behind the design concepts. But, but another another thing that I picked up on is that you, you've got a a, a strong uh, strong sense of uh, you're very in tune with the sustainability um, of the agendas. Sounds a bit big, but the sustainability concepts of oh reusing materials, taking a more holistic view about how the, the public realm fits in with that whole sort of ecosystem about people using public spaces. Uh, yeah, I, it's, a, it's again, it's a primary driver uh, and force within our work. Uh, we do work in other cities, but I am going to talk about Glasgow again here just for a moment because uh, COP26 is, is being hosted in, in, uh, in November this year in, in Glasgow. And uh, we are heavily involved with the city because uh, we've also been appointed to deliver another significant piece of work, which is looking at uh, Custom House Key, shifting the key walls 20 metres out into the Clyde over a kilometre stretch uh, of, of, of the waterfront. And it's south facing. Uh, and like a lot of cities, Manchester and, and, and Birmingham and other places, those cities uh, and Glasgow uh, has disengaged from its river environment over the last number of decades. And this is a project that is uh, encouraging the city to pivot around and, and, and re-engage uh, with, with the river and what that means in terms of uh, the amenity uh, and benefit and value that it brings to the city. But uh, quite critically, uh, cities are intrinsically sustainable places and the concentration of, of activity in and around cities uh, offers up a very efficient way to use resources and be responsible with regards to the finite resources that we have on the planet and uh, allowing us to rework the landscapes in a way that minimizes journey times, minimizes the need to travel. And that's something that actually has been accelerated. Uh, COVID has been a catalyst for that behavior change over the last 12 months. Uh, maybe we might come on to that a, a little bit more detail in a moment. But with regards to the climate, what you're doing there is you're, you're removing the need to travel, uh, shortening distances, but actually accessing more. There's a lot more services and facilities uh, on your doorstep within a short walk or, or, or cycle ride or whatever it might be from your front door. So the, the very composition uh, of these neighbourhoods uh, is... Uh, more climate responsible and then when we start to look at the materials uh, and the incorporation of green and blue infrastructure into those streetscapes and public realm uh, it becomes super critical. I, I would just quickly add uh, that I am also on the NLA uh, wellbeing panel uh, through the, the teams down there in London have been picking up really best practice from a wide cohort of different uh, practitioners and experts and landowners and, and, and developers. And the idea of well-being in cities has become quite rightly super critical. And the relationship with the climate and the landscape and nature is a key fundamental touchstone that we need more of in our lives to help us feel better uh, about ourselves. And that has a significant impact on public health and well-being. So these, all these things are, are interlink, interlinked and interdependent. Leah, do you just? Sorry, Aidan, off you go. Do you a lot of the ideas that civics are using are you know you're pushing the boundaries of what has been seen before? Do you yeah. find 
that clients are receptive to this or is there a bit of an ongoing process to educate them and bring them up to speed with with where I, you're thinking yeah there, there 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 is an ongoing process i think um we we've been lucky enough to work on the climate innovation district in leeds which is a sort of new some new family housing <clears throat> almost it's almost right in the center of leeds and we've um there's but there's a lot going on there as well there's a school a care home um, some employment so actually it's a real mixed use thing and it's really keying into this 15 minute neighborhood um we've got really low car parking there and that's we've made sure that all the routes through to the school for example are easier to walk than they are to drive you know if you want to drive you have to go all the way around but actually there's some really direct and pleasant routes across the river along the riverside to get to the school and that'd be um absolutely brilliant and that's been a really good exemplar to then apply to other schemes as well so some of the um some of the other schemes we're working we're working with york council on there they've got a huge really low carbon housing i think it's about six to eight hundred homes across across the city um and we work they're in, in separate pockets but we work really hard to justify why providing a certain amount of parking is right in this location and how people are going to live there and how um if they don't own a car, how will they get about and can we help them with, I don't know, cycling or a car club so that they can borrow a car for those times that they need it. Um, and we sort of building this picture and building this momentum and then and then talking to new clients about that. And we do find that people are getting nervous. There's a lot of I was in a meeting last week, which was about the sales team were getting really nervous. Like if this isn't a um, detached house with two car parking spaces will never sell it and we were saying no 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 look there's these developments people love them and it's they're such great places to live and people can play on the street their kids can play on the streets outside the houses because they don't have cars whizzing up and down and you know is it there's a real community thing you sell it as part of this whole sustainable development thing and actually people buy into that and there is there is a market for that and we would really it's sort of every time i i um think i've kind of cracked it there's like a whole nother dimension so it's like marketing people now that we need that we need to talk to and convince them that it's worked and that there's a way around it and we could just sort of start thinking more cleverly about about people's lives and how we solve their problems for them for example people won't cycle. some people won't cycle because the helmets are in their hair now if you were to provide a hair dryer and a straight and some straighteners at work no some people won't I know that Tim, that I might be a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> but like just doing things like that might make the difference between someone choosing to cycle to work or not. There's just little micro reasons why people people's behaviours are as they are, and just opening up possibilities and trying to tackle all these little things and listening again, listening, so that we make sure that 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 we've got the infrastructure there that Stephen's talking about. Then we've got how we use it and the operation of the systems we put in place and then people's actual behavior and their attitudes to it um, and make sure they buy into it. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating what you're, you've articulated there, Leah, because of course, you know, I've got a, a marketing bent. And of course, what you're talking about is you're almost talking to the marketing team at the house developer. Yeah. Builders, yeah, we were. Yeah, where your customers are thinking, or I will be thinking, or are thinking, and this is what they want. You're actually inputting into the yeah. front end of a, a housing house builder, a house developer. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting. That's very interesting. It is. 
because you, you've, you've got uh, some insights there which are unexpected from our yeah. sibling yeah, business. We're literally teeing up conversations between, oh, this this developer here is using, you know, I'm, I'm writing to their marketing people going, speak to these other people. So, yeah, to try and, to, but actually, if we can provide, if they, they're all buy into this message and we can provide half the number of car parking spaces, we can provide twice the amount of play space. And actually, who doesn't want healthier and happier kids? I mean, that's, and safer kids, you know, that that's, that's. But it, you make for a better place and better communities and more connectedness and more security because you're all looking out for each other. And actually, that's that's much more um, it's much more positive for for people's lives. The, the the impact on mental and physical health there is is you know outstanding if we can get it right. What's definitely what's uh, really interesting with the, what's happened over the past year or so. I'm speaking to someone who's got two young children who've just gone back to school this week. Um, what what was normal when when I was their age, the aspirations to have the house and the two cars and the drive, and the, I think is very different, isn't it? And that's and it's changing very rapidly. Yeah. And I wonder whether I I could get uh, your views on what how the whole COVID post-COVID, the post-pandemic thinking may change or is changing with regard to the, the public realm. I don't know only how it's going to be used, how it's going to be designed um, the, and the, all of those things that you've spoken about. I mean, people have got different sensibilities now, I suggest. Yeah, I think so. I think we've got people who, uh, people's working patterns are changing which I think is is quite significant. I know that, you know, just a half hour change to the day means that people who haven't been able to get, say, wraparound care for their kids can go and drop drop their kids off. So you can see that that would have an impact on the transport networks. Um, then I think there's a the whole social distancing thing. We've seen the introduction of temporary cycle lanes and widened footways so that people can keep their physical distance from each other. Um, and, uh, and I think it is a really good opportunity for a, a rethink that whole to rethink that whole system really do we all need to go into the office every day well we don't because we've all just proved it so um and that has a huge impact on what our towns and cities need to be um and how how they work i don't know if you want to come in stephen yeah i i think i'd, I'd broaden that I, I agree with all of those points and i think it is a fascinating question and i think covid we clearly wouldn't choose to bring covid in as to as the way to to make these changes but now that it has happened uh, i think what we need to try and do is protect what the best parts of of, of that change has uh, has affected and i also think that this is particularly relevant and, and uh, pertinent when we think about retail uh, and the future of our high streets and these places that were and are and should and, and will remain as the central gravity of these communities, uh, but no longer the sort of binary retail or closed high streets uh, that we, we, we have had for, for quite a few decades. So I think that shift is uh, significant. I mean, we've seen ASOS and Boohoo come in and buy high street brands, uh, which are highly unlikely to ever return physically uh, to the high street. 
that does open up and I, and I make this point notwithstanding the pain that those businesses and the people affected by those changes have had on their livelihoods and and, and their way of life so i'm not i'm not being dismissive of that but in terms of looking forward uh that that does present the opportunity to rethink re, uh, town centers and broaden out their constituency bring in a much broader use uh for the buildings and repurpose those buildings keeping the character uh, particularly the in heritage towns and, and, and uh, town centres, uh, but actually bringing in more culture and emphasising more the experiential qualities of those places so they can thrive. And I, I'm, I, I've no doubt personally that they will. I think it's just inevitable. These are the places where people want to have the convergence and opportunity to socialise and, and interact uh, and, as I say, experience. Uh, so there's there's only so much you can do from your front home these days i think if anything we've all experienced our neighborhoods on a very different level over the last 12 months so i see that uh, becoming by design rather than being forced upon us and what that might mean in terms of thinking those things through in a more positive front-footed way do you, do you think um you, you've worked in altrincham before haven't you and <clears throat> is, is that kind of a a prime example of what we could see throughout other towns throughout the I, uk and the localized nature of it I, th I think so. Uh, I mean, it is going to be really fascinating to see how Altrincham reawakens yeah. after the COVID lockdown. Uh, the focus or the sort of reinvigoration of Altrincham uh, was very much about its sociability. Uh, Altrincham Market and the streetscapes and other bars and restaurants that then colonised those spaces to, to create this critical mass uh, and choice for people. Uh, and also the hosting of events and performances and bringing local schools down with their choirs, which then brought their families down. And it was it was a, a very uh, it was actually quite a sophisticated operation because you had quite a lot of involvement from the business improvement district. So all of those businesses, there's 500 odd businesses that all contributed into a central pot to coordinate and curate that program of activity. Aiden. And I think um, it, it, it's been that care and consideration that's continued to drive the footfall so the infrastructure the infrastructure is an important first step uh, as leah has mentioned there's sort of three layers to to the process there's the there's the hardware uh, of, of the physical landscape or town center or, or whatever it may be there's then the software uh, how you regulate it and how you manage it and then there's the sort of orgware how society colonizes it and actually uses it in practice so there's those three layers that of of of, of place uh, and it's a good format, but everywhere is different. And what you would want is to capitalize on the distinguishing features and culture of that particular place. So it might offer some clues, Altrincham might offer some clues to somewhere in Leicester or, or a, another market town. Uh, but actually that market town has got to find out, it's got to develop its own mojo and figure out what, uh, what its local community prioritize and value. Stephen, I think on that note, uh, everywhere has got to find its own mojo. So <laughs> that, that's the tip I've taken out of this episode. I, I'd just like to thank you and Leah for an excellent uh, discussion today. Uh, we'll put the your contact details in the show notes, but presumably you're easily found at Civic Engineers. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay, so I'd like to... Thank you very much for uh, spending this morning with myself and Aidan. And of course, to our viewers, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And please like, 
and subscribe. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Construction Big Breakfast. Thanks. Bye. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for the highest R&D tax credit you can claim. We help construction businesses get back millions in tax credits every year. Contact us today for a free review. Thanks for joining us this week on the Construction Big Breakfast. Make sure to visit our website, www.invent.com, where you can subscribe to the Construction Big Breakfast on all platforms so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a positive rating. Or if you'd simply share it with a friend, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in for our next episode.